Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Eye of the Cricket by James Salis, read by Ray Shell. We're in New Orleans in 1997. Lou Griffin's various investigations have had one very pleasurable outcome. He's met Deborah O'Neill, who sells flowers and writes plays, and promises to be a significant figure in Lou's future plans. Somehow, we go on being given new chances. What I was thinking Saturday night or Sunday morning, whichever show you watched from, having left Deborah's a little after one, lying with body exhausted, mind chugging away in a bamboo-like shaft of moonlight. Late that afternoon, I'd come home, and on my hurried way towards a shower and new clothes, gone into kitchen for a bottle of water, only to find refrigerator, pantry, and shelves stocked for the first time in years. With no one to cook for, I'd long ago given it up. I ate out or nibbled at plates of cheese, crackers, sausage, raw vegetables. A note from Ezekiel, scrawled in huge printed letters, taped to the refrigerator door like a child's school drawings put on display, read, A fragile ass egg for breakfast. It was ripe. Then as you may have noticed, I went shopping. Someone has to. Figure since I don't have a job, I'll take up a hobby at least and get down to some gourmet cooking. Always meant to. Zeke. Of the six messages on my answer machine, the most important was from Tulane. Basically, hello, hello, is anyone there? Like a message launched blindly into space. I would have called back right then, but nobody be around on Saturday afternoon. I'd missed, what, one class? It seemed like mo. This week had been all over the damn place. Felt as though I needed a map and one of those timelines of history charts. So many things happened to us, Deborah said, arm passing into light from the window as she gathered the pink cotton blanket loosely about her. How are we ever supposed to know which are the important ones, which ones matter? We're not. Maybe the ones that matter are the ones we decide matter. I'd love to believe we have that much control over it. She sipped white wine from a tulip-shaped glass. You never drink, do you? Only because for a long time that was mostly what I did. My father was a drinker. I made no reply, became a receptacle. He'd been a tyrant a long time, I guess. Told my mother what to fix for dinner every night, how much she could spend on a household that week, when she could buy shoes for herself or the older kids and he'd fly into these smashing, screaming fits of rage when things went wrong. But by the time I came along, I was a late child, a surprise. My mother turned 40 the year after. He'd become an invalid, someone my mother had to care for totally. Wet brain, she called it. Mom would prop him up in a chair in front of the TV. She'd tie a sheet around him to keep him from getting up and wandering off, and she made these diapers out of old towels. That became pretty much his life, such as it was, sitting propped up in front of Dallas, a dream of genie, or the Rockford Files and improvised diapers. Died when I was twelve. It's mostly the tenderness I remember. 
this incredible tenderness my mother showed for this man who so terribly abused her. I moved up beside her, and she leaned into me. I could end that way too, Lou. I felt the heat of her tears on my skin. We all can, all too easily. Her finger traced a crater of a gunshot wound on my shoulder, a knife scar low in my ribs. The first looked like a smallpox vaccination, the second like a zipper or the backbone of some tiny animal. You're one of the important things, Lou. This matters. I didn't respond, just pulled her closer to me. Okay, so it's romantic abandon you want, huh? You have some? Sure. Hang on, let me open a can. To tell you the truth, there's a surplus. Lots of supply. No demand. These men you've been seeing, they got their balls up on the shelves. You know they could never love you, baby. They can't even love themselves. You know if you need someone who can. Well, I could be, you know I could be your lover, man. You better believe me when I tell you I could love you like a man. All day Saturday, I'd been out there beating bushes. Hauled myself out of bed at seven, sliding from under bat, asleep on my chest, to face a working man's breakfast of scrambled eggs, grits with jalapenos and cheese, toast, melon. Might as well use all this food since it was here. Bat felt the same way, circling back to his bowl again and again, mewing shrilly as I ate drank a pot of coffee with breakfast and another afterwards while cleaning up the kitchen. Nerves honed to a fine point, whereupon I hit the streets. There are several groups of people who make it their business to know who's in town, to notice new arrivals, take note of weaknesses and dependencies. Some are, as they like to say, with the government. Some work for even older and still more centralized, if far-flung, organizations. A few are independents. None more independent than doo-wop. He knew everyone's stories, had them fixed forever, flies and amber, in his memory. That time of day, it was relatively easy to find him. He'd be near one end or the other of his regular route. Some days he started uptown and worked his way into the quarter. Others he did it in reverse. I took a guess. It was a little before nine when I got to Lafitte's and the bartender told me I'd just missed doo-wop. He did boost one drink from the guy that was here, a beer if you can believe it. That's what doo-wop did, roamed the city, trading stories for drinks. I caught up with him at Monsters. It started life as a disco about the time discos were dying out, then briefly managed to transform itself into a concert hall for the likes of Don McLean, Arlo Guntry, John Lee Hooker. Mirror balls still hung over a dance floor crowded with stacked plastic chairs and unlit. Posters curled and cracked on the walls beside signed photographs of musicians no one had ever heard of. My man, Doo-Wop said to my reflection in the mirror behind the bar. Silver had worn away in patches, erasing portions of the world. Been a while. We'd known each other now for over 30 years. This was his standard greeting. Sometimes I'd be my man, other times Captain. Names weren't a big thing with Doo-Wop. 
Been a while was equally generic since doo-wop had no conception of time. For him, everything happened in the present. Hope and mean time, a friend once called it. Buy you a drink? Part of the ritual. New Orleans is a Catholic city, a pagan voodoo city. It takes ritual to its heart. Doo-wop pause, head tilting first right, then left, as though sampling winds. Bourbon, he decided. I called for a bourbon. None of my business, of course. He sniffed this new shot of generic whiskey as though it had been aged in barrels. You ever find any of those folks you show up asking me about? Some of them, sure. They want to get found? Some of them. He nodded and threw the bourbon back, waited quietly. I glanced at the bartender. He put down another. Doo-wop's look let me know we were ready for business. Name's Armatine Rouch, I told him. Twenty-ish, black, knows his way around. Maybe freelancing as enforcement for street bankers. Scamming, definitely, and it could be almost anything. Started off his career stealing money from a relative's purse. Soon went on to bigger and better things. Boosted cars, stabbed one of his teachers in the chest with a pair of scissors. Boy, is busy, I nodded. From around here? He is now. State's been taking care of him the last few years. Sprung him this past August. Taking care of himself again. I showed him my copy of a photo Don had pulled up from prison files. These shots are shaky at best. Add the fax machine's contribution. It could be anyone from Pancho Villa to Charlie Patton. Nice photo. Right. And for doo-wop, downright garrulous. Don't look much like him, though. Ah. I dropped another ten on the bar. The bartender snagged it neatly with one hand as he set down Doo-Wop's shot with the other. Doo-Wop sat, considering. Tommy T's tavern out on Gentilly. I knew the place. Any given time, half the guys in there were cons, the other half ex-military. Cons I could handle. I understood them. Only fools felt safe around the others. Oh, you one, Captain. Doo-Wop had a finely developed sense of just compensation. To his mind, the drinks I'd bought him exceeded the value of the information he was able to give me, so next time was on him, and he damn sure wouldn't forget. One other thing, he said as I stood to leave. Okay. Take Papa with you. He don't get out near enough. Probably be up at Kenny's about now. You stop by there. Doesn't get out, huh? Kenny's? Far as Papa's concerned, that's the same as staying home. Within the hour, Papa and I were out there, sitting in a back corner at a table with four legs of unequal length and warped floorboards beneath, with mugs of barely chilled, watery beer. The mugs made quiet, sucking sounds when we lifted them off the table. The dominant smells were Lysol and old grease. The dominant fashions were muscle shirts, t-shirts, and tattoos. My coat and tie and my black face stood out like a cardinal in a flock of penguins. No one in there could keep their eyes away from our table. 
They huddled together in groups, talking among themselves, glancing again and again in our direction, till one of them finally couldn't keep nose, balls, ego, and white pride in check any longer. Stepping so close that his legs touched the table, he looked straight on at Papa. Welcome to Tommy T's, he said. Don't remember seeing you in here before. Papa sighed. You haven't seen me in here before? Well, then don't be a stranger from now on. I'm Wayne. He glanced around at the others to see how he was doing. Just so there'd be no distractions, someone pulled the plug on the jukebox. Three notes up the four-note climb into dominant in chorus, Hank Williams Jr. stopped singing. What was coming up was sure to be better entertainment. But you gotta know to leave your boy there outside, right? His kind ain't never been welcome here, won't ever be. Papa looked up at him. Papa was stamped from the same pattern as a lot of them in there, brush-cut hair, leathery face, but he'd been fighting undisclosed wars, leading other men into those wars and losing a lot of them. Good men and bad wars, bad wars and good men, when Wayne was grunting his first diapers full of disposable goods. Now, boy, Papa said after a moment, I know you can't much help being the stupid asshole son of a bitch you are. It's what your folks were before you, God bless them. How you gonna be anything else? I understand that. We all do. He looked around the room. So I'm not gonna take offense at anything you just said, considering the sauce and all. Instead, I'm gonna offer to buy everyone in here around. What the hell? A couple of rounds. There was a pause as all the mathematicians worked on this new equation in a formula they thought sure they already knew. Seems to me they're drawing closer to our table. As up closer to the blackboard, scowling at figures there. This is probably paranoia, I think. No, it's not, I think. Muscles bunched and tattoos on biceps puckered as Wayne reached across the table for Papa's neck. Sometimes I almost forget how naked and ugly their hatred can be. But I saw it then in his eyes. Old man and a nigger. Teach this white man a lesson. Hit that nigger bad, then get back to his drinks and friends. Simple plan, way things were meant to be. Wayne's arm was halfway across the table when his face moved suddenly away from us, back and down, like the detectives on those stairs in Psycho. His head hit the floor. Papa's hooked a foot behind his ankle and pulled him over. Then Papa was down there, too, with his knee planted in Wayne's genitals. Suddenly, light flooded the bar. A voice from the open doorway said, You threw playing with him, Captain. You let that young idiot up off the floor. Assuming he's able to get up. He can't. We just dump him out back. The door swung shut behind him, closing us back into darkness. Gene, plug that jukebox in. Rest you either get back to your business or out of here. The clientele swarmed back to drinks, TV shows, pool tables, conversations. Hank Williams Jr. abrupted into the forecourt. Free at last. The man dragged a chair over from the next table and sat down with us. He and Papa grinned at one another. Jack, Papa said, so you own bars now instead of tearing them up. Mostly. Heard you were still in Cambodia. I was. Su Ling doing okay, I hope? Believe it. 
Papa nodded. Always thought that girl had fine taste, and then she up and married you. Here you moved up in the world too, Captain. Buy you a beer? Sure. These came from under the bar, in bottles, beads of cold sweat on them. The man sat looking down at Wayne. You think that boy's gonna get up? He'll come around. He's strong. <laughs> Good thing, too, dumb as he is. They grinned at one another again for a while. Don't guess you showed up here just for old time's sake, the man said. Papa shook his head, then looked at me. Lou Griffin, I said, putting my hand across the table. He didn't take it. I told him about Armatine Rauch and why I was looking for him, described his appearance and background, slid the photo across the table which tried to keep it, told him we'd greatly appreciate any help he could give us. When I was done, he looked at Papa. What's this all about, Bill? I've never heard anyone call Papa by name before. Talk to him, not me, Papa said. He sipped at his beer. I just run the ferry. Right throwing back half his beer. Okay, I guess I owe you that at least. The second half of his beer went looking for the first. Griffin, that right? Man, you looking for this Rouch? Yeah, he comes in here some. How often? Some, I said. You know where he lives? Around is what I heard. You consider having your people give me a call next time he shows up? He glanced over at Papa, who nodded. Okay. Thanks, Wheat. But you want to look him up before then? He teaches a self-defense class over at the high school every Saturday. I asked for directions and got them. That it? I nodded. Appreciate it, Jack, Papa replied. You be sure to give Su Ling my love. When he was gone, we sat looking down at Wayne. Good work, by the way, I told Papa. Guess do what figured I might need you out here. Usually have to do my own heavy lifting. Papa drained off the last of his beer. Yeah, well, good thing once in a while to just get back, let somebody else do the cooking. When I got home that afternoon, three police cars were parked a couple of blocks up my street. Cops stood talking to people and writing on clipboards as radios sputtered. The kids on bikes had grabbed another purse and a wallet from an old couple out for a walk. One of my neighbors had chased them halfway to Ferret. You know, bootleg Sal used to live across town. The law went down and it closed her down. Now you can't get the stuff no more. Now you can't get that stuff no more. No matter how you try, you can't buy, you can't get that stuff no more. The high school on this late Saturday afternoon looked abandoned. The front fence, facing on Joseph, was impassable, looped in lengths of chain and padlocked. Around to the side, near the back, though, was an old delivery entrance. Roots from a nearby oak had shattered its drive to plugs of cement, sitting all on different planes, with shoots of grass and weed between them. The gate stood agap. There was a long groove in the cement where the gate had been forced open until it go no further, forward or back, and it remained so ever since. I was crabbing through this gap 
thinking I'd come too late. No one's here. It's a waste of time when a young woman appeared outside a utility shed lodged at the lot's far corner. After a moment, others began to emerge, individually in pairs or small groups. Most wore gym clothes, fleece shorts, sleeveless tees and sweats, warm-ups, a few in skin-tight biker shorts or cut-off jeans. I watched as they slipped through the fence on their way back to cars, cups of coffee, blockbuster videos, showers, drinks, apartments, homes. Was that it? I waited. Faint strands of music from inside, and moments later, a man stepped out. He wore an unreconstructed silk sport coat over maroon t-shirt and chinos, carrying a backpack and portable CD player. Pulling the door shut behind him, he glanced my way, but his eyes passed on. Then he seemed to remember something he'd forgotten or left behind and went back into the building, towards which I was moving fast. I went through the front door just in time to see out a back window the chain-link fence rebounding where he'd gone over. It still sang against its posts. The window was never intended for exits, sudden or otherwise. A quick moving off in trees were they a Bigfoot or deer slayer. You live the way Rouch does, you better have good instincts and reflexes. Somehow he'd sense I was there, knew I was there. I went back inside. The floor, which also served as foundation, was cheap cement, poured quickly, pitted and uneven. Exercise mats were scattered about, folding steel chairs pushed together held the skelter at the back. Two or three were capsized. Rouch had gone over them to get to the window. I went over the fence and along a path and emerged just moments after Rouch. As he came out of the trees, a black Honda Civic swung around the corner from Joseph and pulled in at the curb before him. Rouch peered into it, to all appearance as a surprise as I was to see Sean Delaney there in the car, and got in. I was half a block off when the Honda pulled away. In the rear-view mirror, Sean watched me sprint towards them, slow and stop. I jotted down the license number in my notebook. These days, I trusted very little to memory. I went back through the trees to the outbuilding, where I failed to find the clues any good detective surely would have, then took a bus home, where, before leaving again for dinner with Deborah and, as it turned out, her play, I sat at the kitchen table, looking up at Zeke's note on the refrigerator door and thinking how our lives weave, dodge, collide. And I remembered Hosey Strauder. Our lives can be taken away from us at any time, Lou. Suspended, assumed by others, devalued, destroyed. Snap a finger and they're gone. Don't ever forget that, Louis. So many holes in my life, small ones, day-size, week-long, owing to drink and disavowal, others deeper and farther reaching to various inabilities and inactions, an entire year gone to blood loss, hospitals, drugs, and afternoon TV when I was shot. When Laverne leaned above me saying, I possibly only imagined this, you want the hole to take over, don't you, Lou? 
It's not enough anymore just to stand close and peer over the edge. You want the whole to come after you. It did, of course. True, there were times it seemed I hardly cared what happened to me. At some level, I suppose, I half hoped for the worst, became a kind of magnet for it, walked into situations no rational man would breach, set myself up for disaster again and again like some dime store wind-up doomsday machine. But I never lost sight of how perilous every moment of our life is, how frail and friable the tissue-holding self and world together. Only the luckiest ever get to show up at the door with long-legged heart in hand. The piano has been drinking The piano has been drinking Not me Not me Not me Sometimes I wish I could forget. At some level, of course, forgetting is what the drinking was all about, along with other holes in my life. And forgetting, I now know, is the sea unto which my son David set sail. Looking back at what I've written thus far, these many twists and turns of chronology, I wonder if, in some strange way, forgetting may not be what I have been about here as well putting things down to discharge them, working to tuck memories safely away in the folds and trouser cuffs of time. Moments ago, I pulled out a legal pad and, reading back through these two hundred-some pages, tried to plot out, tried to untangle and write down sequentially the sequence of events. Let's see. I'd already been stomped by those kids out on Derby when Zeke showed up, right? And dinner with Deborah, attending her play? Was that before or after Papa and I encountered the great white hopes out gentilly way? Just where does my first meeting Deborah fit into all of this? Or finding the body in that tract house on Old Metairie Road? Memory's always more poet than reporter. Proust at the barricades, or Faulkner struggling with the screenplay for the big sleep. He can't figure out what order all this is supposed to have happened in, and in desperation finally calls up Chandler himself. When I wrote that, Chandler tells him, only God and I knew what I meant, and now I've forgotten. Memory's never been much of a timekeeper, always whispers, trust me. Never one, though, to show up when needed, keep its room clean, do laundry, bathe on a regular basis. But Lord, as Granddaddy Chappelle might have said if he'd ever thought much about such things, sitting on his back porch outside Forest City with a jelly glass of bourbon, plug of tobacco, and three generations of children swooping around, himself quite a storyteller. Lord, what stories it tells. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.